You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Sleep apnea. We know it makes for tired patients and angry bed partners, but in our patients with other disorders, are we overlooking this common, treatable cause? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and with me is Dr. Nancy Collip, Associate Professor of Medicine and Medical Director of the Johns Hopkins Sleep Disorder Center in Baltimore, Maryland. Welcome, Dr. Collip. Thank you very much. So sleep apnea is out there. It's uh, associated with common disorders that we see. Uh, tell us about the link with some of the disorders we might not appreciate are linked to sleep problems. Well, I think one of the strongest associations in more recent years that's been discovered is the association of sleep apnea with stroke. And there's a number of, again, epidemiologic studies that have shown that if you look at studies in which they've gone into hospitals and done sleep studies on patients that have either suffered a stroke or a TIA, you find an incredible prevalence of sleep apnea in that population, as high as between 50 to even 98% in one study, patients that came in with a stroke or TIA had evidence of sleep apnea. So there's a very strong association with stroke in the post-stroke patients, and obviously people have wondered, well, was the sleep apnea there before the stroke or after? And in studies where they've subsequently followed these patients over time, they find that indeed the obstructive sleep apnea does tend to persist, making one believe that it was probably present beforehand, along with a number of other things that that, that suggest that. So, so stroke seems to be a risk factor even after you, in these epidemiologic studies, adjust for the role of hypertension. So it's very strong with regards to stroke. I imagine it would be very difficult to do a study to see if treatment had any effect on that risk. There's been people that have tried. I once heard a neurologist speak in, to this problem and her point was that, you know, here a patient comes in with a stroke and we tell them, okay, now you got to stop smoking, you have to lose weight, you have to take all these medicines and you have to go to the rehab program and, you know, you have to exercise and you have to, <laughs> the list goes on and on and on. And now on top of it, we want you to wear the CPAP machine. <laughs> and so where the CPAP fits in is difficult. So I think... Um, my, I feel like our role as physicians is to try to, to diagnose the patients before they have their stroke and get them treated because there's, it's going to be difficult for them to comply with CPAP following treatment, although, you know, we certainly try to do that as well. And are there other cardiovascular conditions that seem to have a link to sleep apnea? Well, again, if you look at studies in which they've gone into hospitals and monitored patients that come in with, say, acute coronary syndromes, they'll find a very high prevalence of sleep apnea, 40% of patients with acute coronary syndrome will have sleep apnea. So uh, there's also a, a recent, there was a very nice epidemiologic study where they followed patients that uh, were diagnosed with sleep apnea over time. It was a very large study and found that patients that had uh, apnea poverty index greater than 30, so by most definitions, moderate to severe sleep apnea that were untreated had at least two or three times the prevalence of fatal and non-fatal cardiovascular events. So it's, it's very common in uh, patients with coronary disease. The sudden death link is a little bit more difficult. There's not good studies that suggest, because uh, I hear patients all the time say, oh, does this mean I'm going to die in my sleep? And there's not really a lot of evidence that that's what happens. However, there was a nice study done out of Mayo Clinic a couple years ago in which they 
looked at residents in the state of uh, Minnesota that had both had sudden death and had had a sleep study that had either documented or refuted sleep apnea. And they looked at the population to see which of those patients actually, or what time of day actually those patients had their sudden death. And the sleep apnea population had a much higher likelihood of dying between the hours of midnight and 6 a.m. compared to their control population and to, as you know, the general population, which the most likely hours to have sudden death in the general population would be the hours of 6 a.m. to 12 p.m. So, you know, whether or not it actually increases the risk for sudden death, we don't know. But there is that one study that looked at it in that mechanism. And then other cardiovascular type of comorbidities we commonly see, hypertension and pulmonary hypertension, uh, there is a link with those. Correct. There is data also suggesting that, uh, particularly with hypertension, if you treat sleep apnea, that the blood pressure does reduce. Yep. It, uh, it appears that, at least in some of the best studies, that the treatment of hypertension with sleep apnea is about the equivalent of taking one medication for your hypertension. So, you know, in the patients that are compliant with their CPAP, they can, they can expect, presumably in many of the patients, they can expect an improvement in their blood pressure. What about esophageal reflux, something non-cardiovascular? Yes, yeah, so it's very high prevalence. As many as 70% of sleep apnea patients will have reflux. So it's, again, one of those very common associations. We used to think that from a pathophysiology standpoint that uh, it would make sense these patients would have reflux during apneas because, of course, as again, you try to inspire against a closed upper airway, you generate very negative pressures in the thorax, which then could presumably pull the stomach acid up into the esophagus. But when they actually started looking at it, they found that, Yes, indeed, patients did reflux sometimes during the apneas, but they just tended to reflux aside from the apneas as well. So it's not as simple a link as one might think with regards to sleep apnea and reflux. The other thing that's maybe a confounding factor is sometimes if you reflux you know, all the way up to the upper airway, that would increase upper airway inflammation and edema, and that may actually precipitate more sleep apnea. So, so those are the potential links, uh, links to sleep apnea as well. And is there evidence that you know of that treating sleep apnea can lessen acid reflux? Yeah, there's a couple studies that have looked at that, looked at that, and and indeed both uh, looking at esophageal pH probe testing as well as symptomatology that. Most patients will have an improvement in their reflux symptoms. And again, it would make sense, wouldn't it? Now, if you have positive airway pressure now, now you're generating positive airway pressure in the chest. That helps close the esophagus and presumably would help reflux. Uh, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and I'm speaking with Dr. Nancy Collip, Medical Director of the Johns Hopkins Sleep Disorders Center. Dr. Collip, Obesity certainly leads to sleep apnea. Does treatment of sleep apnea help with obesity? There's not a lot of data that would suggest that uh, once you put somebody on CPAP, they lose weight. And again, from my own anecdotal experience, I will have some patients that, you know, they do find a lot of times when you treat their sleep apnea that they do feel better. They're able to get out and exercise more and, and do more because they feel better. Is there any uh, link with depression, anxiety, other so-called psychological 
psychiatric disorders. Certainly with depression, there's strong links, again, with uh, sleep apnea. The studies have shown that uh, many patients with sleep apnea often have depressive complaints or, and or have been diagnosed with depression and or are on antidepressants. Again, there, studies would suggest that there is an improved quality of life with uh, the treatment of, of sleep apnea. So, so yes, there, there also is an association with depression. And if you think about it, again, it makes sense. I mean, if you're chronically sleep-deprived and have no energy, you know, may have sleepiness complaints or insomnia complaints, all those would fit, you know, with a diagnosis of depression as well. So a number of common comorbidities should make us think about, does this patient possibly have sleep apnea? And treatment of sleep apnea can help with some of these, particularly you mentioned hypertension and diabetes and perhaps others. Are there any bottom line messages you would give to primary care doctors about finding patients with sleep apnea and getting them started on treatment? The biggest challenge for us in sleep medicine is to just get people to ask about patients' sleep you know, we spend about a third of our life doing it, so <laughs> it's an important uh, aspect of, of health. And, uh, you know, there's been a number of studies that suggest that physicians tend not to ask about sleep. So, you know, I encourage physicians to, on their intake histories, you know, be it written questionnaires or what have you, to, to you know, ask questions about sleep. Patients tend not to think about sleep as something they'll talk to their doctors about. So it, it goes both ways. So the, the first step in my mind is to just get people to ask about sleep. And then, you know, some of the common comorbid conditions, I think it's especially important to think of those patients in terms of, you know, whether they can have comorbid sleep apnea that's contributing as well. Are there other sleep disorders that you see that perhaps primary care doctors should be more aware of or approaching differently? Well, I think... One of probably the most common sleep disorder is insomnia. You know, a third of patients will have an insomnia complaint, you know, over their lifetime. So, so, and we've all had insomnia, can pretty much, I think, say that. Uh, there's probably very few people that haven't had at least one night where they've had some insomnia. But what we're talking about more are the, the chronic insomnia patients. And you know, it, it often tends to, you know, be pushed aside. You know, you know, it's it, insomnia is a, tends to be a very resource-intensive type uh, symptom. You know, you have to then get information about, you know, their sleep habits and their medications and their bedroom environment and, you know, what kind of stress they're under and et cetera, et cetera. So, so it is a difficult complaint for physicians to tackle, but. And so it's much easier to just write a prescription for a medication to try to improve their sleep, whereas we know that, you know, actually trying to get at the root of the insomnia and, and you know, figure out why they have it and address the primary cause is probably much more efficacious than just uh, writing a medication for it. So I think insomnia is the other big challenge with regards to sleep medicine that we have in primary care populations. Is there ever uh, value to giving a patient a week or two of Lunesta to reestablish a pattern, so to speak, and then trying to pull them off? I would say yes in some circumstances. I still think that before you start writing prescriptions for medications, I mean, it's hard to answer that question because I think any individual patient, is, you really need to figure out why they need the drug. So I think it's important to, you know, try to figure out. I mean, you know, if, if if it's because they're under in a very stressful situation or because, you know, they're 
spouse just passed away, or I mean, if it's an obvious, you know, reason for their insomnia, then yes, you know, I think it's very easy and safe to prescribe hypnotic medication. However, beyond that, I would still urge physicians to try and figure out what the root of the insomnia is first. Well, I want to thank Dr. Nancy Collip, who's been our guest as we've been discussing comorbidities associated with sleep apnea. And then we touched on insomnia, the very common problem, but often very complex problem to understand and treat in our patients. It's been very, very interesting, and I thank you again. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.